Imagine, if you will, sitting down to your morning coffee, turning on your home computer to read the day's newspaper. Well, it's not as far-fetched as it may seem. In fact, both local San Francisco papers are investing a lot of money to try and get a service just like that started. Long-term, I believe that it's very easy to predict that there are going to be lots of successful companies born of the Internet. They're going to have very large market caps and, and so on. I also believe that today, where we sit, very hard to predict who those companies are going to be. I've been getting a question over and over and over and over again. How do I raise money from an angel investor and VC? Build a good enough business that they all come to you. All right. Welcome to a new episode of The Next Big Thing. Today we have with us one of the most renowned faces of the Indian VC industry, Mr. Rahul Chandra. Rahul is the founder and managing director of Helial Venture Partners. Through his career in the VC industry, he has invested in a start-studded portfolio including Make My Trip, Big Basket and Red Bus. Rahul has published anecdotes from his life as a VC in his recent book, The Moonshot Game. What we liked about the book was that in addition to pointing out the objective parts of the VC industry, which includes board meetings, pitches, etc., Rahul has also pointed out the human parts of it. So we're really excited to talk to Rahul about his book and get his insights regarding the startup ecosystem and the VC industry. And with that, I'd like to start this interview. Keshav? We'd like to start at the very beginning of the Moonshot game that you decided to return to India and you found Helion, moved to Gurgaon. And this was in uh, 2006 and you'd already raised $140 million from the US investors. And so I just wanted to understand how did you place your bet on India back in the day, back in 2006? And this is obviously the era when Steve Jobs hadn't introduced iPhone to the world also. So what was India's tech landscape looking like back in the day? Uh, thanks for having me, first of all, guys. Nishay, Keshav, this is, uh, this is good to be with, uh, you know, especially both of you being from Bitspilani makes it very special to do this podcast. So thanks for having me. Um, and Keshav, I think on the question of how did we identify the opportunity in India, the 2006 was, uh, you know, a time where India had just uh, placed itself on the global map as one of the largest countries or the largest centers for delivery of technology services and also business process outsourcing services. So it had, you know, been, you know, at the front of what was outsourced product development or outsourced technology services uh, and the quality and the uh, interest of the global enterprises had got lit because you know the last 10 years since Infosys started to 2006 had actually been um, you know a fairly interesting journey for India becoming a delivery center for the rest of the world it was uh, very common to say that hey China is the you know manufacturing capital and anything around you know, digital services, technology services, India is the number one location. It still still makes a lot of sense to say that. But the opportunity that kind of showed up in 2006 was that, um, you know, I'd been investing in India in the late 90s as well. India was always this, you know, high potential country where businesses were very small, you know. So uh, entrepreneurship was all around, but startups weren't. Right. So there was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of ability and uh, competency that was floating around. But that, you know, it, the informal entrepreneurship that India has always had for hundreds of years had not translated into technology entrepreneurship. Uh, 
you know okay. india had seen a, you know a bit of uh, introduction of technology entrepreneurship in 90s late 90s and then in uh, early 2000 uh, where consumer internet brands started forming but it was obviously very premature india didn't have that many internet connections people were not online as much and the, you know even in 2006 the entire internet population in india was less than what facebook was adding every quarter in terms of the number of uh, folks who were getting on facebook so it was uh, you know 2006 was still potential you know high potential opportunity for india there was very little that china had in terms of being ahead china was very similar to india in terms of opportunity venture capital was still very early in china in 2006 just like it was in india so there was no comparison that hey there is a better market outside the us india was exactly you know at par with china two other big important things was india was as big as china as a consumer population goes uh, it you know one of the largest markets in the world which is uh, you know which is a untapped opportunity for global companies and uh, you know it was a democ- it's a democracy it's it's an open economy anyone could come and set up and you know i think the uh, rules and regulations were fairly uh, transparent and uh, you know well designed so it was um, you know formally a very good structure with high potential uh, in 2006 mm-hmm. with very little in terms of uh, is there any better destination for venture capital you know going to some other country uh, so you know things were actually uh, very exciting because there was uh, so much potential waiting to be um unfold you start the book with a high note for india you say that investors all around the world they were looking towards india but in the last chapter of the book you uh, say and i quote india's vc opportunity had started neck started off neck to neck with china's but in the last decade had been left behind india had still to prove its worth as a destination for investors in vc firms so what gave china an edge in the startup space and where did we fall short yeah and unfortunately that is the reality uh, so the 10 years that unfolded from 06 onwards the shortfall was really in the kind of scale that indian companies achieved the uh, early days of uh, you know this 2006 onwards china had a much more pervasive consumer internet infrastructure in place and devices were also cheaper and more pro- you know proliferated a lot more than in india you go back to 2006 only corporate workers would have a device which would connect to the internet homes typically were not connected and you could either go to a store or a shop in the neighborhood and then get on uh, online to access some service uh, that slowness finally it got a little accelerated around 2010 11 so the first 4 5 years for india was a very slow uh, ride compared to china where you know gaming you know internet cafes just proliferated like crazy so just people coming online was uh, far more in number uh, and uh, you know there was a lot of consumption that was beginning to happen in terms of purchasing power right so you know purchasing power and access put chinese startups ahead of you know how how quickly indian startups could achieve scale uh, and then what obviously follows is that Uh, there were a lot of exits uh, there was significant you know return of capital to investors uh, people actually saw real dollars coming back on their investment whereas in india it, you know there was uh, uh, clearly because of the slow start a lot longer time that it took to 
to see capital coming back and scale uh, that is uh, that is needed to see a venture type of return now keep in mind that venture is taking two kind of risks in this case one is most you know most of the money is coming from the us the first risk is that it's uh, inherently uh, a risky asset so people know that you know 30% um, you know casualty rate is is normal uh, and you have to find winners right unless you find big winners you cannot deliver you know four five times of the capital invested absolutely uh, so if the winners don't happen and if they even if they happen uh, you know they are not as uh, many and also not as large uh, which is which was the case with india they weren't you know we, we could count maybe uh, eight or 10 of you know mega companies out of india in the last uh, you know 10 12 years until about 2016 uh, and in china that was you know maybe a factor of uh, five or seven so just the you know sheer number of you know mega scale mm-hmm. companies that came out of china uh, was far far more than what came out of india so you know this opportunity is uh, uh, you know certainly last 10 12 years you know where you could see this massive gap in what came out uh, but you know again there is uh, there is a point where you know things seem to fall in place uh, and you know there is a like higher likelihood of that kind of success replicating in india so but uh, another follow up question to this is like do government policies like angel tax that were in place for a long time in india until very recently did they also hamper our progress in this regard you know these are all minor irritants people are making uh, a lot of money which uh, you know in the last 2 3 years angels have seen you know multipliers happening very early on then you know taxes are not what is the hindrance right it is you know are you seeing your capital come back quickly is there an opportunity to sell uh, are there buyers for your early investments and then that money goes back into the startup ecosystem uh, so mm-hmm. there are i think bigger problems but yeah is india completely free from all kinds of hindrances of course not so it's not as mm-hmm. uh, you know free a system as uh, a us is for example which has actually got everything going in terms of the rules and regulation being very conducive but at the same time you know there are bigger problems which is you know which are now slowly beginning to change and those are you know how quickly can companies figure out product market fits uh, how quickly can you hire people to give you that kind of scale how mature are the founders to you know actually go from purely founder led companies to building an organization structure going after markets in the first place that are large enough these are problems which uh, you know need to be sorted out first before uh... sir so, uh, and you mentioned that when you came to india it had a base of informal entrepreneurship as you call it and technology mm-hmm. entrepreneurship was uh, emerging or wasn't but i want to uh, ask is technology a piece of genetic code and be inserted into the dna or is it too core to the company's approach to solve a problem does it define culture or can it thrive confined only to a room or a floor in the office uh, so i'd like your views about this about your investments in get it yg and uh, the overall question so clearly the learning was that it's uh, you know in my mind it is a dna which cannot be inserted later on and it you know it cannot be confined to here you know here's my tech team it has to be okay. you know thought ground up right so very i'm very clear in 
the you know the hindrances or the the handicap you have if you don't have uh, you know a tech founder basically looking at a business problem right very simple if it's a, a person from that industry who's again looking back at the same problem there would be you know a very systematic way of approaching the problem but would be you know a, a continuum in terms of approach it will not be a very disruptive approach to solving that problem but somebody without any technology without any industry background but with a technology background is much more likely to think of a completely new way of looking at it but the way to solve it would be technology driven right which is inherently scalable so that combination right. of you know you look at any problem you don't need to be from that industry but create a solution which is scalable that is the ideal solution you know so mm-hmm. so for me the the dna problem uh, is is a high one and uh, you know and but okay. uh, you know at the end of the day uh, people overcome these issues you know co-founders uh, are are very important but to be able to you know allow mm-hmm. the business to look at you know unconventional ways of solving older problems you know that ability comes easier to tech founders and you know i think traditional okay. founders from the same industry find it harder to relook at at how problem should be solved so you have really emphasized on the notion of timing in the book at multiple instances so the first time you talk about it is when you talk about when you compare jigrahak to yeah. paytm and you compare graysell to whatsapp you say that the factor that determines successful startups to some equally smart founders but not as successful in their startups is the timing that they uh, go into the market with and the second time you mentioned timing is you know when you talk about exit timings for vc uh, for vc firms mm-hmm. i want to talk about both these timings you know if mm-hmm. you could shed light upon the former where you define how a startup success is very much correlated to the timing that it goes in with the second one where you talk about the vc firm success with the timing of the exit so see timing can be in of can be of two kinds right timing can be what you can control and the second one would be where you have absolutely no inkling on you know whether it is the right time or no you know not the right time so some of the uh, things in the book fall in the first category and some fall in the second category so the second category you can almost call it luck right there is absolutely no way you can make an informed decision about a timing that you have no idea about right it will just be either you know you are lucky in doing something you're doing it at the right time but you have no idea and you know you're lucky to be doing it at that point i i limit this to a positive or negative outcome irrespective of the quality of the founder right it is if if that founder was doing it at the right time much higher chance of success if you're doing it at the wrong time and my point is you cannot time it right most founders you know who are ultimately successful they will not think too hard about hey is this the right time to solve this problem you know there is another part in the book where this is called flipping coin analogy um, you know there's so many coins getting flipped just look at it as you know you go through you're one of the coins or your business is one of the coins it gets flipped and nobody knows the outcome uh, there is a 50 50 chance of success and failure so that is the second category which you know which is the you know the funny one right where it's out of our control as humans and the first one you know is is probably more deliberate right where if you get an offer and you don't want to sell at that point you take a deliberate decision not to sell uh, you know if the company has grown you know there is a 
strong inbound interest from acquirers. It's important to mm-hmm. catch that in my mind because there is a timing that the market values your company higher than it's not necessary that it will be valued higher tomorrow. Right. So I think identifying the time, uh, you know, where an exit can be maximized for your investors and for yourself in case you're you know, thinking of an exit that is much more in control, you know, within human intelligence than the other one. So in around 2010, I think, is when your first financial services investment came in the form of Equitas. And later, of course, you've invested in a lot of uh, financial services, Shubham, Spandana. And especially with Spandana, I want to ask you about the role of a founder. And you also mentioned later in the book that through your investment team, you studied CEOs and founders understand what made them tick what were those values and skills then uh, during the time of spandana and overall what makes founders tick you know it's it's still <clears throat> in that category of questions which doesn't have a good answer right i mean yeah. if you yeah. everyone you know everyone has some framework to judge and it is never a 100% solution always i mean we certainly know that uh, what are not good qualities i think that's that's easier Identifying you know, what makes for a great entrepreneur is, is harder. But you know, clearly the uh, uh, Spandana story is all about you know, so much emotional investment in the startup that only a founder can bring. Where you're basically eating, breathing, sleeping your company and there's nothing else that matters. Which means that you know, the, the, the chief believer is the founder. Uh, you know, the chief uh, business growth person is the founder. Uh, the okay. chief uh, you know, fundraiser is the founder. Uh, uh, Padmacha at Spandana, you know, is probably the single biggest reason why Spandana has eventually gone public versus just going into oblivion. Right? That kind of energy that founder gives is, is very unique and it cannot be replaced. You know, professional managers cannot come in and replace the energy that founders give. You know, and you sometimes don't understand it, right? Uh, you know, maybe people didn't understand a Jeff Bezos when he started off. But now it is very clear that mm. Amazon wouldn't have been such a giant if, uh, you know, Jeff had handed over the reins to a professional CEO. And I'm sure, you know, some of the board members would have told him to do that at some point. So the that kind of vision and belief also comes in very, you know, very much to the forefront when the times are tough like they happened with spandana okay. the you know the belief is what keeps you going you know when you're breathing eating sleeping you're not worried about a paycheck you know i'm sure founders go without paycheck first and foremost in case there is a problem because for them you know what matters is much more uh, which a professional ceo obviously has to you know has to not consider so so this actually brings me to uh, my question about the age of founders i've you've also mentioned oyo's case in the book that ritesh agarwal was in his teens when he came to pitch to you guys and he couldn't make it to the priority list of the companies that you were tracking to invest currently if you're investing in companies do you take age very seriously you know since since then you know again thanks to people like ritesh uh, there have been uh, you know hmm. basically very large uh, alterations in the way people say you know age Correct. You know, the reason for that is that, you know, colleges have started entrepreneurship workshops and programs earlier on. So by the time people come out, you know, from school or while they're still in school, 
they're fairly adept at you know understanding issues and you know laying out a path and knowing you know 101 what needs to be done so you know thankfully it's also complemented and the reason for why people believe in younger founders nowadays is because obviously some have been very successful but also because you know there is no there's not much gap between uh, young founders ability to think and execute and take risk uh, is obviously much higher than somebody who's older so so that you know you can safely say is in that zone where age does not matter anymore for most vcs i'd like to move on to another part again jigrahak comes in my question again what i want to talk about is you said and i quote that jigrahak was solving complex engineering problems and driving customer usage at a time when burning cash to attract customers was not fashionable i want to talk about this phenomenon of burning cash to attract customers there has been a clear transition from a business model a sustainable business model where you know companies focused on revenues at the very beginning to a business model on the likes of WeWork, Uber and Lyft. So when did startups transition from the old model to the new model? And was it a particular case study that made investors feel comfortable with such a business model? And do you think it's sustainable? Again, it's a very complex question, very hard to answer it, uh, you know, without a discussion and multiple nuances. You know, there's a, there's a point, I would say, in 2011-12, uh, when Airbnb, you know, Uber, these businesses came about, you know, in a in a fashion in which it was very clear that it's possible for technology startups to disrupt very old industries. You know, taxi hailing, uh, which uh, finally what Uber boils down to is uh, probably as old as the automobile history. The uh, hotel industry has been around forever. You know, inns and you know, rest houses have been have been around as long as we can, uh, you know, as long as history tracks. So the uh, question now is, you know, we've got this existing structure, and suddenly you put this seed which is growing much faster. So why not water it more so that it actually ends up disrupting something meaningful? So the justification of burning cash initially and then creating something. Uh, was driven by you could create something very large right and the opportunity is very large and you don't need to fear you're not going to be a smaller marriott you could compete with the marriott right or you're not going to be a smaller you know taxi company you're just going to be you're going to dominate that so if if the wins are so large and you know they justify all the burning uh, you know then the burning is not i mean burning is a negative sounding connotation but basically it's you've got to you know gain market share until you start seeing network effects because there is a promise of network effects, right? You can't show network effects normally in, in very small uh, footprints. Hmm. So this is the, uh, you know, the main reason why around 11, 12, this format of building large consumer side tech companies, you know, was justified. And I think the overall shift of, you know, global capital chasing opportunity all finally concluded that, you know, for the next you know foreseeable future tech is the best place for you know alpha returns so conventional business building you know is never going to go away but you know there are certain opportunities that show up where without scale you know you're losing out both on market domination and also on potentially what can be the size of returns 
That's a very interesting point, sir. I mean, you need a network to display network effects, right? So that fundamentally defines why these startups are able to burn cash and still appease their investors for some time. But I want to come to come to the VC industry. You know, we've talked about startups. We've talked about uh, how founders should uh, display some qualities. I want to go to the culture of VC firms. In your book, you say that as a VC firm, your culture was driven by humility, you know, very quintessential middle-class values. I want to mm-hmm. ask you, as an insider, how unique is that in the VC industry? And what motivated you to keep that culture in a glamorous industry like yours? Uh, this was a choice, right? This was something we wanted to make sure is not compromised. You know, the reason for that was, you know, we were a team uh, which had a high degree of sensitivity and awareness of the challenges that entrepreneurs go through. We didn't want them to come in and, you know, treat us like bankers, you know, formally, you know, giving us formal feedback and formal views because this industry is based on, uh, you know, a combination of facts and and also just plain unproven uh, you know visionary uh, facets so it's highly unstructured uh, and it also needs unstructured conversation so you know if you are trying to not be hum- you know have humility or to have any other attitude towards founders the conversation is never you know rich enough to to be able to make out uh, you know what the business can be you know if you are trying to be the smartest person in the room as a VC, then the founder shuts up, you know, you never hear their views. And you're in this discourse format where you're giving yarn to somebody who's actually doing it every day. You know, so, it, you know, it, it's a very self-preservation, you know, decision, which was if you want to have good conversation to be able to learn, uh, you know, exactly what the founder is going through, you need to have you know, very undisturbed channels of communication, you know, are not disturbed by attitude or arrogance, etc. So you have to be, you know, in the same wavelength as the entrepreneur is. So that was the reason for that decision. And I think it's, it's, it worked well. Uh, And, you know, we created uh, a team which kind of subscribed to that. And I'm, you know, I'm glad to see that is, you know, even in the bunch of VC firms that came out of Helion, uh, that, that value is, you know, replicated across the board in, in right. all the firms that came out. Right. So I really appreciate your founder first driven culture. In fact, your book itself, you know, starts with the quote to the founders who have been, who are and who will be. I don't know how unique is that to the VC industry, but then I definitely feel that your firm is. Uh, the next thing I want to ask is again, very much related to the VC industry. You know, in the book, you have talked a lot about the investing side where you work with startups and where you work with founders. And you also quote that as a VC, you spend more time with startups than investors. But I also want to know about you know the back end of it where you go on and pitch to investors for your funds my main questions in this regard are who are the investors so are these hedge funds are these big family businesses in the us how do you generally approach these investors are there specific platforms or are there networking you know conferences where you go and meet them how does this work yeah the investors are you know basically people who are uh, seeking uh, additional returns over what they are otherwise making. Uh, they have a very strong appetite for risk because, like I was saying earlier, one is this—you know—the the venture business itself is highly risky. 
uh, and then as a result it demands very high returns and number two is you're also taking a country risk by coming to india especially if the capital is coming from outside absolutely so this high risk and high return expectation cannot be you know cannot be easy to you know give comfort to people now over the last 10 12 years the the kind of investors you know has grown tremendously but also has the vc industry you know there is so much attractiveness about returns and high returns possibility that that the vcs uh, are not the only ones investing capital anymore right so you know a lot of investors are investing directly into startups which was never the case and you know there is plenty of capital that comes in a very high degree of club deals where you know three family offices get together and fund a company uh, or individuals will fund companies uh, because you know everybody has had exit events and you know there is plenty of capital to you know to go out uh, so the profile of investors has changed and also how money finally gets invested has also expanded right earlier it was mostly vcs mm-hmm. now it is you know multiple different pools that are also investing in india alone uh, probably 2 3000 angels get added every year oh so you know that potential of raising money from an angel has improved significantly in the last 10 years right then you know raising money i think where do you meet these guys uh, uh, it's a it's still a very small world mm-hmm. where you would have to know people or they would need to know you Mm-hmm. so past performance is very important you know experience is very important in the industry uh, unless you are india in 2006 you know or you you are going into a you know maybe a nigeria now mm-hmm. uh, and you are local and you you know you you know startups in nigeria and you know somebody if you even if you don't have a track record somebody might take a bet on you uh, but you know the the likelihood of raising institutional capital is lower unless you have uh, you know a long track record of deploying institutional capital from before i'd like to ask a follow up question to this the name of the book is called the moonshot game and you've taken multiple moonshots with a lot of startups and you defied probability by making most of them land so as a vc your betting needs to be perfect so i want to understand what makes this bet go right most of the time what makes a good vc and how does one develop this ability to have the right bets all the time so it's not uh, possible to have have it right all the time because that's the nature of the beast i mean i've had some glorious failures uh, get it was one of them what you can rely on is the you know quality of the founder where you know you run into a wall and uh, uh, you know the founder basically clambers over and uh, still has energy to you know run another 2 miles that's a kind of founder basically you should have the ability to to identify now you know i became a good vc i was not a good vc to start with and this is the perfect example of compounding in life you know you can't become a good vc overnight it's always over time where small things add up every day and then it takes time to to actually uh, get into a place where you know patterns start to form and you know you're able to find the balance between you know dogma and you know the unproven so in your brain you should be able to balance these two concepts uh, where you're not getting married to the past yet you're learning from the past 
you're not getting jaded about the future yet you, you know you're you're optimistic with with a decent dose of you know what what may or may not work and you got to do all this with that uh, humility aspect as we had talked about before you know much like charlie munger the you know fundamental concepts of how businesses work how you know how certain certain rules in economy never change um you know how human behavior sometimes you know what part of human behavior is predictable what part is, is not predictable you know so those things how you understand it you know through multiple relationships through you know seeing companies in action seeing the in arts of startups over time also being able to uh, almost predict what to watch out for and then your ability to convince a founder hmm. you know because here there is no uh, obligation that the founder has to listen to you and you know and there are some examples how that listening and 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 hearing can can get disrupted by certain founders who are you know basically tell you that you're you're you know you're not uh, uh, in a place to give guidance but you know i think wherever that is working it's a huge amount of credibility that is needed and relationship that is needed with with founders where you you have you are in a position to actually give the right guidance to prevent mm. you know ob- obvious and predictable accidents so those are uh, i would say ingredients but you know it's, it's clearly a case of uh, i believe you get better over time here and you could be lucky in the beginning but in order to be you know predictably good um, i would choose between being predictably good versus unpredictably great so you mentioned that some founders don't want to listen uh, and and obviously housing.com comes to mind so uh, i i want to know basically about the founder vc question but i like if you could give me the example give us the example of housing you know it's a beaten horse here. i think housing everyone knows the story i'll talk more in you know generic terms yeah. because uh, it it's uh, been talked enough okay okay you know the, we talked again about humility and having the right amount of uh, balance between two parties who are uh, not very different from you know when contractually and uh, you know you would take an equity position in a company and you know assuming that the vc doesn't quit his job for the next uh, you know 7 8 years you are mm. very tightly linked as a couple right there is a very strong you know bonding that happens because you know a founder can't throw out the equity investor uh, unless he shuts the company down and if he doesn't find a buyer the vc can't get out you know so they both you know held in position now there's a choice whether you want to have a good relationship or you want to have a completely broken down relationship where uh, you know it's not productive for both parties so you know setting off on a you know first of all finding the right partner is extremely important where you see that this will be a product this is much like marriage right where you're trying to see who can you be you know who's going to help you evolve as a partner hmm. versus you know you being in this say i'm never going to listen to this right. guy yet i'm going to get into this eight year relationship with this person you know those are uh, obviously not good starting points so the um, human obligation on hmm. both side is you know think of this as a relationship contract not a business contract which you know where you can close the windows and close the doors and go do your own thing Hmm. because there is potential for disruption hmm. on both sides right if both parties become 
disruptive and and uh, not helpful uh, or actually you know try and cause disturbance it's highly possible you know both parties can make each other's lives quite miserable i think the second very selfish thing on the founder side is that you know especially if the vc is going to be investing in your next round you don't want to be you know in a pissing match with the vc right there is a high likelihood that high you know transparency and communication is what is going to drive that next decision and there is nothing like a validation coming from your existing investor if your existing investor says you know i don't believe in this company or this guy then that's a very very big you know negative mark uh, for you know for your prospects when you go out to raise money from new investors so you know you you, you it is in it's in your interest to actually keep your uh, you know investors well informed so that there is confidence and uh, understanding of what's going well and what's not going well so i also remember mm-hmm. that uh, the founder vc equation you talk about and i think more jokingly uh, you talk about when you were talking on the phone at home your wife used to recognize from your voice who you're talking to so i guess that definitely tells a story on its own i also want to talk about uh, since me and keshav are at very early stages in our career and a lot of our listeners too kind of career paths do you see people taking before they become partners at a vc firm and a lot of people have also said vinod khosla and i quote him that best vcs are the people who have already worked in startups and have an experience building up a company what are your views on the correct career path to get into the, uh, the vc industry yeah it was a lot uh, lot unpredictable in the past but you know there is uh, vc is a long term business and hence uh, that also follows this institutional approach of bringing in younger people and grooming them and you know and setting them up as potential future partners so the uh input is very important right when you're assessing someone for future potential it's you're looking very uh closely at intellectual horsepower uh you know value systems and you know your ability to assess people and problems right so what we talked about the several levels of conversation with the founder can you take that conversation two three levels down in detail right. right so you have to have first and foremost a very strong interest in um you know going towards becoming multifaceted in your approach to evaluation right if you are too single faceted like i only like to look at excel sheets but i don't like to talk to humans you know that's a big handicap you know you you have to be someone who can uh, take multi format inputs and give multi format outputs right yeah. that that personality type uh, you know generally happens where people you know are familiar with dealing with unstructured data mm. or they're comfortable with with uh, you know less than perfect information in taking decisions uh, making sense of uh, spaces which are otherwise unmapped mm. ability to provide insights and and develop insights around uh completely you know messy spaces messy companies and i think processing all of that information uh through mul- through the multiple formats of you know talking to humans or getting some sense of you know confidence or lack of confidence and all of that processing uh is is what a good preparation can be for a vc career 
when you talk about the Indian VC ecosystem, you say there were three distinct periods in its evolution. I want to talk about the fourth one. Do you see a fourth revolutionary period in the VC ecosystem anytime soon? Or have you already seen that? The fourth one is probably what is now building. I think the uh, factors that are important for a China type of, uh, you know, return and scale up are all in place in India. The high likelihood that companies can scale uh, very fast, which then leads to, you know, maybe 50 unicorns coming out of India in the next 10 years. Right? 50 unicorns is a lot of capital that is coming in and going out. And so it's a very um, productive period, and but also a high growth period in terms of, you know, teams leaving to start new firms, uh, new firms coming in from somewhere else, uh, you know, foreign VCs coming into India. The opportunity is going to attract a lot of players, you know, right now. Do you think we are a little unfortunate to arrive at this juncture when the global recession is almost imminent? Possibly, yeah. I mean, it's hard to hard to say. Um, you know, I think the only argument that I hear is that it hasn't happened for a while, so it should happen. But, you know, with the US performance, economy performing the way it is, it's very hard to say it's imminent. So this is basically the end of our questions related to the book. I want to end this interview with your advice so what advice would you leave our listeners with at this at this juncture? My advice would be, you know, find great co-founders, uh, you know, and, and look at that as, you know, as a, as a weight carrying or weight sharing uh, approach to finding co-founders, uh, given the, you know, the enormity of the journey and the effort needed. You need very strong shoulders to, to be around. So, you know, find very strong shoulders in your co-founders. And number two, uh, go after markets which are, you know, complex and problems that are very hard because those give the best moats for uh, your business. Like in the book, your your insistence on founder uh, VC relationships, founder co-founder relationships remains, you know, the key. And I, I do appreciate that because I think, you know, from what I have understood from your book, a lot of this industry is built on relationships and a lot of it, a lot of the startups are actually uh, successful because of good relationships. So that was my insight from, uh, from the work. So at this point, uh, Thank you so much, Rahul, for being with us today. We had a good time. I think this was one of the most content-rich interviews we've ever had on our podcast. Great to be, yeah, great yeah. to be on the podcast. Okay. Thanks, guys.